Well, good morning. My name's Simon. I'm a member of this congregation. Seeing as Barry's not here this morning, I thought I'd better, you know, channel Barry and use his device. Just about see over the top of it. (laughs) Alex and the team, thank you so much for your worship leading this morning. That's been really helpful. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the people who never get acknowledged. Um, So really appreciated the mix on the sound this morning. Thank you, Shane. And Andrew, you have a role similar to an umpire in an AFL match. Um, Really, we only notice you when you make a mistake, which means you've been perfect this morning because you've gone unnoticed until now. So, you know, it's actually a team effort, isn't it? And when it all works so well, that just adds and makes everything easy. Yeah. So it's my privilege to to launch this series, which takes us through until Easter, which is about the, the radical hospitality of God. And there are a couple of reasons why I think Barry must have had a little bit of a sense of humour, maybe one he knew and the other he didn't, about this particular passage and inviting me to preach it. One is there's a reference to doctors in there, so of course that was always going to be my passage, wasn't it? The second one is that I have to preach about people being hospitable and welcoming new people in front of my wife. And that, for those of you who know me and how much I I love breaking my shyness barrier, uh, (laughs) anyway... I'm going to be stuck with it now because I've said it in front of all of you and her, so there we go. I was walking down here this morning and I I, I like to walk to church, I particularly like to walk if I have a role up front because it just gives a little bit of time to think and and process and, and so forth and a strange thing happened. Dampness fell out of the sky. What was this? I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm not sure what it is, but I should have to report it to the authorities. It's it's clearly an unusual event and something is not right. That kind of leads into what I wanted to start it off here, which which was actually to talk a little bit about authority. I'm going to begin with this little item. Who knows what that is? It's a passport, yes. What kind of passport is it? Can you see? It's an Australian passport. Yes, it's a used passport as well. There's a few bits and pieces in here. Um... So yes, I am a, I'm an Australian citizen, I'm delighted to be one, and so I am the bearer of this passport. But who knows what this is? It's also a passport. Yes, you and I have actually you know, flashed these on a similar flight a year or two back, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually, this is not just a passport, this is soon to become a collector's item. Yeah, because this says at the top two things, European Union and United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Ooh, how long are those going to be on there for, on the one, on the one document? What happens as of March the 29th or 30th? Uh, well, it could be interesting. Uh, I do think, however, that uh, just on a slight side matter, A, it'll get delayed, and B, there'll be a referendum and it won't happen, and you heard that here first. What is important about these passports is that they symbolise something. They don't just allow us to travel. They actually symbolise that we are citizens, that we belong to somebody, that somebody has authority over us and in return they extend certain privileges and protections to us. Now, I have two passports. I have dual citizenship because Australia and England allow each other to, uh, to, to do that. Not every country does, by the way. Um, this also means, and you, know, you all heard this here first as well, I shall never be standing for federal parliament because with these, obviously, I, I can't do that. Yeah, OK. Amen, says my wife. Yeah, OK. Strangely enough, I could stand for state parliament, but I don't believe that'll be happening either. It fascinates me as well that on this, it actually talks about the United Kingdom. 
it, yeah, it's a bit of a joke at the moment, isn't it? Because they're not very united, are they? They're really in a terrible mess over a number of issues. The other thing which is fascinating about this is that it still refers to a kingdom, I guess because we can't have a queendom, but we do have a monarch, you know, we do have a ruler over Britain who is actually in Australia our head of state also, another potential area for controversy. But, you know, although she's a monarch, she's a queen, and in time we assume King Charles will be a king, um, in many respects they are not what we would think of traditionally as monarchs because their power has in many respects been shaved away. Yes, they're still incredibly wealthy and they enjoy great privilege, but they don't exercise direct rule and reign in the way that some of their predecessors did and certainly not in the way that we would once have understood a king to have actually ruled and reigned. So the biblical understanding of a king and Jesus as our king is very different. There's no parliament and prime minister in the way. He doesn't just have a symbolic and functional role. Actually, he rules directly. And unlike the real queen or king, every one of us has direct access. Every one of us who calls him king knows him knows him face to face. There's another interesting little thing on the inside here. Let me read you. The Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, being the representative in Australia of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, requests all those who may it concern to allow the bearer, an Australian citizen, to pass freely without let or hindrance, etc. So the Governor-General, on behalf of the Queen, requests... Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of Her Majesty all those whom it may concern. Requests and requires. Let's put up the passage. So we're starting with a passage from Luke. Uh, To put this into context, Jesus has actually just in the preceding chapters uh, called his first disciples... Uh, He's also shown his mastery over illness uh, and uh, over the elements. And now he's walking and encountering people and still, I think you'll find, showing that he is king and that he is master. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. In some translations, you'll have Matthew. It's believed that he's probably the same Matthew who wrote the gospel, but in this he's Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others, and by the way, some translations say other notorious sinners, were eating with them. Mm, Good guys. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not called to come the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we've worshipped this morning, we've remembered again the welcome that you extend to us. And as Alex reminded us, we've remembered that all we need to do is call because everything that needs to be done to restore our relationship with you has been done and it is finished. 
But Lord, we thank you that even better than that, you don't wait for us to call you, but actually you take that initiative and you put that call on our lives. You invite us and you say to each one of us, follow me. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would speak clearly to us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to be obedience obedient such that when you call us we will follow dropping everything and going at once and we dare to ask this dangerous prayer in the name of your son Jesus Christ amen i reckon it's great whenever you look at a passage of scripture like this one to try and imagine well where am I in this passage? You know, some passages are about straight teaching. This is a story included for teaching purposes, included with intent, but it is essentially a story with a number of different characters or players in it. So I believe it's a good idea when we read this to think, okay, well, what would my part be in this story? Where do I fit? So with that in mind, what I'd like to do is to explore who some of the characters are, and maybe you might like to have a think about Maybe even, Holy Spirit, you might like even to show people where they fit into this. So the first and most obvious character is Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. And clearly, every story needs a bad guy, and the tax collector would have to be the bad guy, wouldn't he? I mean, um, I won't ask you to put your hand up if you like paying tax. That would be a waste of time, wouldn't it? Who likes paying tax? Tax guys, collectors, clearly bad people. It's worth remembering, though, that their system of tax, because we think of it as being a little bit like he was the sort of local representative of customs and excise, or the border control people, you know, he was sitting in his booth, probably collecting something off people as they went in and out with their goods, so it wasn't quite like sending your tax return into the ATO and getting something back from the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation. We, although I suspect none of us enjoy paying tax, we recognise that when we pay tax... What happens? Well, that's how roads get built, that's how schools get built, that's how Medicare happens, that's how pensions happen, it's how politicians go on junk... No, no, we won't go to that one. But, you know, by and large, we would acknowledge that many good things happen in our community because of the tax that we pay. So we grumble, and we'd all like to pay less, but we'd also all like to see more in terms of services and the goodies coming back. And as Ross pointed out, we've got an election coming... So stand by, something else you heard here first, people will promise that you will pay less tax, people will promise that you will get more back, and there's a black box somewhere where somehow that financially all kind of works, and that is another miracle, let's not go there. So in their system, though, this was not like that at all. Let's remember, Palestine, as it was known to the Romans, was a Roman province. They had a puppet ruler, a king, Herod, in charge, uh, but, uh, in fact, it was under the, uh, the direct rule through him of the Romans. And the Romans said to every one of their provinces, yes, you can be part of us and you can trade freely with us and we will protect your borders, but in return, we require this sum of money from you every year. So it was, in effect, a tribute that went out of Palestine and went to Rome for Rome to do as they please. Some of you will remember a slightly controversial film where some Judeans were getting upset about the Romans and someone said, well, what have the Romans done for us? Well, there's the aqueduct and law and order and whatever. Actually, the Romans didn't do a great deal for the people of Judea, of Palestine. 
what they did was primarily for their own purposes and most of the money went back to Rome. And the way that that was collected was that people were given permission to be what literally in Latin were tax farmers. So guys like Levi would have been told it is your responsibility to collect this sum of money and forward it to the authorities who will then send it off to distant Rome. Anything you can collect above and beyond that goes into your own pocket. Okay, so this wasn't like we gave our money up and we got a school or a road back. This was like this guy's extorting money out of it. Most of it goes off to Rome and anything else ends up in his pocket. So he was seen as a bad guy. Tax collectors were generally, according to the accounts of the time, seen as greedy, dishonest and mean. There are accounts in the contemporary writings of tax collectors selling entire families into slavery in order to pay debts. And remember, this is not the tax to pay for your road or your school. This is the tax to keep Rome happy and to make the tax farmer rich. Tax collectors were also viewed as idolaters, as traitors, as collaborators. So in order for them to actually get on the team and be on the make, they actually had to say, Caesar is Lord, and align themselves with Rome. So again, from contemporary writings, we believe that the tax collectors were actually excluded from temple life and from the worship of the community. They were seen as having transferred their allegiance from the God of Israel and his people to Caesar, an alien and a stranger, an enemy, an occupier. So the tax collector is clearly a bad guy. He's an outcast. He's someone that no one much else would like to hang out with, except perhaps other outcasts, other tax collectors, other notorious sinners. So the first character, the tax collector, and if you want to expand that, the tax collector and in a little while the people we meet, his mates. Who else do we see in this passage? Well, we also see the Pharisees. The Pharisees bob up often in Scripture, don't they? And in general terms, the Pharisees are the kind of people who are so nitpicky about the small things that they miss the big picture. They can't see the wood for the trees. And we have another occasion of them doing this here. So in general terms, the view of the Pharisees was that if you did everything right down to the nth degree and you were perfect, then you would be saved. If you were doing things wrong, then clearly you were not saved, you were evil, you were wicked, and you were without hope, you were dirty. In their view, Jesus, by associating with the tax collector and partying with the other notorious sinners, Jesus had made himself dirty. There was even a saying in the time, I won't attempt to do it in Latin because I never learnt that at school, but it translates to something like this, and you can think about how this works. He who lies down with dogs will rise up with fleas. Someone knows that one. I saw Janie. Could you give it to us in Latin? (laughs) Okay, well, I'm glad. That's good. He who lies down with dogs will rise up with fleas. Or alternatively, we have another saying in English, A man is known, and this will be true of a woman also, by the company that he keeps. There was a guilt by association. So in the disciples' view, these were dirty people who were beyond hope and by voluntarily actively associating himself with them, Jesus had just made himself dirty and unclean. Now, of course, we know that the reality is the exact opposite of that. 
And isn't that one of the great themes of the Bible, that everything that you think you know is actually the other way around? And the, the Pharisees just couldn't get their head around that. The disciples struggled to get their head around it. So we know that in reality, Jesus is clean, so clean that he could never be anything else other than clean, no dirt sticks. So when Jesus, the perfect, the pure, the clean, allies himself to the tax collector, the dirty, the hopeless, actually the equation is that at the end, they're both clean and hope is restored. So here are the Pharisees, as per usual, getting it completely wrong, getting all caught up on the nitty little details and completely missing the big picture. As I said before, they just couldn't see the wood for the trees. And what we start to see from here on in, it's just hinted here in the sort of way they go and have a whinge to the disciples, but we see it becoming more explicit as time goes by, is not only do the Pharisees miss the point, but they feel threatened. What they thought they knew what they'd built everything on, what the foundation of their life and practice and their belief was, was being shaken, preliminary as we know, to being tipped upside down by Jesus. And they were threatened by that and they became hostile. And of course, as we know, in the end, they struck back. So we have the tax collector and his mates, the bad guys, the outcasts. We have the Pharisees, the conventional religious people, but actually somewhat rigid and kind of missing the point. And then thirdly, we see the disciples. The disciples really, <clears throat> pardon me, have a rather minor role in this particular passage, don't they? If you, if you look at it, what you will see is that they, they are really very passive. The only mention of the disciples here is as the recipients of the near, 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 near from the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to have a whinge. They didn't feel able to go and speak to Jesus. So they thought, well, we'll have a piece of his disciples instead. So the Pharisees are very, sorry, the disciples are very passive in here. They're not really doing much. They're almost missing in action. Now, I think we need to be a little bit fair to them. They've actually only just been called. They're still kind of finding their feet with this great guy who seems to come out with all this surprising and rather confusing stuff. So all the implications of Jesus' radical reinterpretation of how to be right with God and how to live a good life, those things actually haven't really sunk in yet. But the disciples are there... And they're really very passive. They're just recipients of a complaint. So there's the tax collector and his mates, the Pharisees, the good religious people, and the disciples who really just seem to be doing very little, rather passive. So there are the three major character groups that we see. And I wonder, do we fit into any of those? And these three rather strange groups actually come together at a feast, at a banquet. So Jesus walks, he sees Levi and he says, you're coming with me. Levi is so excited by this, he drops everything at once and holds a huge banquet or feast, depending upon your translation. Now, Jesus is often shown in the Bible eating and drinking. He actually got criticised by some of his opponents. You know, they said, who is this glutton and wine-bibber, if you want to use the old King James terminology? So it appears that Jesus felt very comfortable celebrating and enjoying food and drink with people and mixing over a meal. The New Testament understanding of a banquet or a feast, though, is somewhat different to what we would be used to when, when we have people around. Um, I think increasingly in our modern era, 
there's a sense in which when, when we have a, a big celebration, the main focus of that celebration seems to be on the food, what, what's on the menu. And, and if you don't believe me, you only have to look at the proliferation of food-type things, you know, re, you know, the reality TV that appears on our television, where the focus allegedly is on the food. Of course, as each season goes by, people have perhaps grown a bit tired of that, so now we need some controversial relationships to spice it up. But, you know, the feast that Jesus went to in the New Testament was not like my restaurant rules or one of those things. The menu was not the focus. No, what was important was the guest list. So what was expected of a banquet or a feast in that time is that you would make a statement about who you are and what your values were by the people that you invited to come and to eat with you. Furthermore, you would typically invite one or possibly two particular guests whose job it would be, after the meal had been eaten, to engage in discussion or to actually give some teaching. Um, And certainly it was considered a very prestigious thing if you could get a noted teacher or philosopher or figure to come at your table, eat with you and, and talk with your guests, that greatly added to your prestige. So it wasn't primarily about the food, it was primarily about the guests and the interaction that went on. So food was eaten, certainly, but the discussion and the teaching and who was there is what really said something to people. The other thing to be aware of in that culture, and we we have hints of this today, I think, although we've lost some of the strength of it, is that when you sat and broke bread with somebody, when you ate with another person, you actually formed an alliance or a bond with that person. So it wasn't just like a casual thing, well, yeah, we had a bite together, but that's it. Actually, by inviting someone or accepting an invitation, by eating together, you were making a conscious and deliberate joining of yourself, not in a very formal sense, but still in a clearly understood sense that, yes, we are now in some sort of relationship, there is something between us, and then to go on and actually betray somebody or to turn against them after you'd sat at table and had a meal with them was one of the greatest insults and indeed one of the greatest shames that you could bring upon yourself. So being at a banquet, being at a feast together isn't just as simple as having a slap-up feed and a few drinks. It's actually about a statement of who you are, what you're on about, and who you wish to be in ongoing relationship or even alliance, to use that term, with. So the meal that they have together is a different kind of a meal to what we would typically have. So there's Jesus, having called, having seen the response and partying, celebrating with, the, with Levi and with the notorious sinners. Of course, there's a very real sense, and we see this again and again in the New Testament, in which life in the kingdom is likened to a banquet, a feast. You'll all know that story about the man who was holding the banquet and the various people that he invited gave excuses as to why they couldn't come. So he went out and said to his servants, call everyone from the highways and byways. Bring them all in if the people who are getting married or buying cows or fields or whatever, if they're too busy, that's fine. Grab them in from the highways and byways. My feast, my banquet must be full. That's the banquet that Jesus calls you and I to. So at Jesus' banquet, everyone is invited. I've got bad news for you. The guest list is not exclusive. You are special but the guest list is not exclusive. Jesus' banquet is clearly not a stuffy, formal event. People were having fun, and the Pharisees kind of had trouble coping with that, didn't they? 
Jesus' banquet, the banquet, the feast that he calls you and I and everyone else to, is also a statement of commitment and purpose. In inviting you, in inviting everyone, in inviting even people who are actually way on the outer, who were considered beyond all hope and traitors, outsiders, Jesus is saying, I am for the outcast and the unrighteous. I am for them. I am not against them. And I love that we sang that this morning. You know, he is for us, not against us. By inviting the outcast, by celebrating with them, Jesus sends a message to the whole world about who he is and what he is on about. You know, it stood out to me as I looked at this passage, and I think it's true as you look more broadly, Jesus spends very little time convincing sinners that they are sinners. Have you noticed that? They know. They might not wish to admit it, but they know. It's actually a bit of a contrast, really. The people he spends most time trying to convince of the error of their ways are actually those who thought they were righteous, the Pharisees. And before we all nod and grin too much, that might also include us in this day and age. There could be a warning there because it was the respectable, conventional, religious people of the day that Jesus actually had the hardest and harshest words to speak to. The early church, it seems, actually understood this. Maybe many of them actually came to know Jesus and to be part of his party through eating a meal, through that kind of invitation. There's a famous dialogue between a a Christian theologian called Oregon um, and a pagan opponent called Celsus. Sounds like he should have invented a temperature scale, but that's actually a different guy. He was a prominent pagan philosopher, and I want to read you the criticism that uh, Celsus made of the early church. This is what he said as these guys were writing back and forth as philosophy types did in those days. Celsus criticised them by saying, Christians invite anyone who is a sinner or foolish or simple-minded. In short, any unfortunate will be accepted in the kingdom of God. How wonderful would it be if someone who wanted to bring criticism to our church today said that of us? In short, any unfortunate is welcome in the kingdom of God. So Jesus encountered Levi. You're coming with me. He came and they went to this celebration which says so much about life in the kingdom. And so again, I want to ask you, have you thought about where you are in this story? So if you identify with the tax collector or the notorious sinner, I won't ask you to put your hand up now, But if this is you, then this story is good news. This story is good news. Because in God's kingdom, at God's feast, nearly everything is the opposite of what you expect. It's the upside-down kingdom. Outsiders are actually in. The king wants you. Can we have that graphic, please? I want to show you. There's a famous graphic. Alfred, Lord Kitchener. None of you will remember when this came out, I suspect, but it's still a cultural icon, isn't it? So when, when the British were looking to recruit people, when the king of the time required soldiers for his army, there's Kitchener. I don't know whether Jesus looked quite like that. I rather suspect he didn't have that moustache. But, you know, there's just something about 
when someone in authority looks you in the eye and says, you're coming with me, if you're the tax collector, if you're a notorious sinner, the king wants you. The king loves you. The king wants to feast with you. So if this is you, the king has come to visit, the king has come to live with you and to claim you. And maybe the king is speaking to you right now and saying, follow me. The challenge is, how will you respond? Maybe you actually feel as though you are like the disciples. Maybe you're hanging back. Maybe you're a bit passive. Maybe you're watching and taking it all in but not playing an active role. The clear message of the Gospels, indeed the whole meaning of being a disciple, is that Jesus wants to move us on. So Jesus welcomes us and he begins by accepting us as we are, but there's a sense in which he doesn't continue to accept us like that because he actually wants to make us more like him. So he continues to love and welcome us, but actually he has plans. He has plans for us. He wants us to move on. He wants to call and equip us so that we can step up and act and actually become players. Jesus in this passage is actually modelling the radical hospitality of God, approaching the unapproachable, touching the untouchable. And you know, just before this, he's been out and touched a leper, so there's a theme coming here. He's doing that for a reason. And the reason is that everyone will see it and so that the people who claim to be his followers will actually follow his example. And so as I looked at this, I thought to myself, well, how am I going with that? How are you going with that? I know that this is an area where I generally feel quite inadequate. How good am I at inviting people, at bringing them into God's feast? As a church, how do we go as a group? Or, you know, do we put barriers in the way? Are there things which might actually make it hard for people to feel welcome, which might communicate to them that somehow they're still on the outside, that they're different, that they're not accepted? We need, I need, to get past my shyness and my fear and take the initiative to actively engage with people. That might involve inviting them into your home, to your church, to some social event, or if we actually see someone who's new here, instead of waiting for somebody else to go and talk with them, actually doing it themselves, ourselves rather. Ouch. Maybe we even need to get into the habit of actually eating together. You know, there's plenty of eating together goes on in the Bible. Sure, our culture isn't exactly like the New Testament culture, but there's still something significant about sharing a meal together, isn't there? There's still something significant about inviting people into your home. Though if you don't feel you can do that, it's okay. You can go out and eat somewhere together. Karen has a great ministry with people who come from an English as a second language background, and we've not infrequently, and I say this entirely at her initiative, I claim no credit, had groups of her students or individual students or couples into our home. And to be frank, I have sometimes felt ashamed as an Aussie that there are people who've been in this country for eight or ten years and they've said to us, this is the first time I've ever been inside an Australian's home. What are we doing, people? What are we doing? What are we not doing? I can tell you we spent two weeks in Iran a few years back how many invitations did we get from random people who wanted to practice their English who said, come and have a meal with me? 
we've really lost the plot. Maybe it's time we started practising some radical hospitality ourselves instead of just passively watching it and admiring it from a safe distance. So the notorious sinners, the tax collector, the disciples, the Pharisees. So maybe you're struggling with the way that Jesus wants you to turn your understanding of how to live a God-centred life on its head. Maybe you've even by nature, and I've been guilty of this many times, of having a, a spirit which is somewhat critical. Maybe you're ready to chew some poor disciple's ear about the stuff that's happening up the front that you don't really like. Well, <clears throat> I'd be careful about that if I were you. Jesus doesn't actually condemn that in this passage, but he heard what they were saying and he responded to it. He knows. The king is in town and he is here to exercise his kingly right to rule and reign. And he asks us, where does your loyalty lie? This is slightly off topic because this is primarily about the hospitality uh, and the radical hospitality of God. But as I thought about this passage over the last day or two, I, I really felt repeatedly the challenge that I need to bring in addition to that this morning is just to compare and contrast two responses to the call of Jesus. So we've just seen this one of Levi, where he came in and said, follow me, and Levi, a wealthy man, with everything this world had to offer, admittedly an outsider, just dropped it and came. But you know, there's another example in scripture where Jesus said this. We call him the rich young ruler or the rich young man. There was a man who obviously had a great wish to be right with God, who tried his best to obey the commandments and came to Jesus asking, well, I've done all these things, what more must I do? And you know, in this tender passage, Jesus looked on him with love and he said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And what did that young man do? He went away grieving because he was very wealthy. And I believe that Jesus grieved for that young man as well because he looked on him and he loved him. So I believe that there are one or more people here today who actually have heard Jesus say this week, in some regard, follow me. The challenge that I believe God wants to bring to you is which way would you like to go at this fork in the road? Will you walk down that path with Jesus or will you take the path where it just looks too hard and you can't give it up and both you and Jesus will go away grieving? I don't wish to bring any guilt. I don't know who you are. But if Jesus is speaking to you at the moment, I encourage you to drop everything and follow him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your call upon our lives. We thank you that you take the initiative, that you didn't wait for us to come to you, but you came to us. You looked us in the eye and you said, follow me. And Lord, we acknowledge that there are times when we really haven't been very good at following. We've hung back, we've wanted to go our own way, we've thought we've known better, we've had difficulty quite getting with the program. Lord, we acknowledge all of that, but above that, bigger than all of that, we acknowledge your grace and we thank you that even when we fail, even when we get it wrong, still your call 
remains. Your grace is sufficient and you still call us to be with you in your kingdom, to sit at your table and share in your feast. Heavenly Father, as we close this this morning, we ask that you would give us the courage to be obedient when we clearly hear your call because we want to be like Levi and rejoice at the wonders of your newfound kingdom. And we ask this in your name. Amen.